Over the last several months, we have been in an ongoing study in the book of Joshua, but we're going to take a break from Joshua this week. We will finish uh, Joshua next week, but I'd like to direct your attention today to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. This is something of a communion meditation for the day. Matthew 15 and verses 21 through 28. In your pew Bible, uh, you'll find the text on page 971. 971. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she's crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, is it right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs? Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. The 21st century church, it seems to me, is coming very close to a Christological idolatry that is worshiping a Christ who never was, never is, and is not the Christ of the Bible. We're coming very close to worshiping a self-styled Christ. The Christ as we want him to be. The vending machine Christ. Put your quarter in and Jesus will give you whatever you want. We want a Christ who always speaks and who always acts and who always gives. We love those passages of Scripture that say, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. Or come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you can ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. We love those I am passages. I am the water of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. That's why when we come to this passage about this Canaanite woman, if you read it seriously from the perspective of the Syrophoenician woman, you've got to be troubled. Because here's a mom who comes to Jesus with an urgent need. My daughter is demonized. Now, it would be one thing if she was coming only with a selfish request, but she is coming like any mom would, concerned for this daughter in whose eyes she looks and she sees this troubled soul and she says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And our text tells us Jesus did not answer her a word. Now, that might not surprise us when we see that in Matthew 27 and verse 12, where Jesus appears before the chief priests and they question him at the time of the trial. And he doesn't say a word to the chief priests. It doesn't surprise us to see this in Matthew 27 and verse 14, when Jesus also at the time of the trial appears before Pilate. 
Pilate questions Jesus, and the text says, Jesus did not answer Pilate a word. Nor does it trouble us when we look at Mark chapter 14 and verse 60 and see that Jesus is now before the high priest. And the high priest is threatening Jesus with his power. And he's asking Jesus questions. And the text says that Jesus held his peace before the high priest. But here we have a mom, like any other mom, coming before Jesus heartbroken over the serious condition of her daughter. And she says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me for my daughter's sake. And Jesus answers her, not a word. We don't like silence, do we? I don't. You get into your car and you turn on the radio. You pop in a CD. You, you, you come home. And you go into one room and turn the TV on. And you go into another room and turn the TV on. You go into a third room and you have the TV on. You're not watching TV, just like the noise. Or you come home and you see, or you hope to see, the light flashing on the answering machine. You, You want to go to the answering machine and find out that there are people who missed you through the day. And if there's no messages, we get bummed out. What's this? Nobody loves me. Or you turn on your computer, and what's the first thing you do? You go check your mail, and you want to hear those gratifying words, got mail. And if no one wants to talk to you, if no one has sent any messages, it's disappointing to us. But here we come to a passage of Scripture that reminds us of the reality of life. Sometimes sound must walk to the rhythm of silence. There are occasions for us when even we find that we can't say a word. You don't go to Auschwitz and stand where human atrocities have been committed and do a lot of talking. You just don't. You don't go to Jonestown where 900 people have taken poison punch and do a lot of verbalizing. There's nothing to say. You don't go to Pearl Harbor and see the effects of the bombing of December 7, 1941 and do lots of talking. You just look in silence. There was a mom who went to the Vietnam War Memorial and she was holding up her daughter, putting a finger on one name that was there. It was the name of the father that she never knew. There was a crowd that gathered around and they weren't doing any talking. All you could hear was sobbing and sniffling. I don't know if you've ever had to sit beside the bedside of a loved one whose frame has been reduced to skin and bones. And then their last hours, and in the last hours, the breathing changes. They start breathing heavy. The chest heaves, and then it reduces. And eventually you get to the point where there's an inhalation and not an exhalation, a tick and no talk. It's not a time for talking. There's silence before the next sound is the sobbing. Of family members. How do you handle silence? 
particularly when it's God's silence. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. God is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. There's a classic story in the Old Testament about a prophet by the name of Elijah. He had just seen the miracle of God as God sent down fire to consume the sacrifice. After that, he was literally running for his life. Jezebel was chasing him. And he wanted to die. He felt all alone. Felt as if no one cared. And then we see that a raven came. And we see this text. That for Elijah at that moment, God was not in the earthquake or in the windstorm or in the fire, but in the still, small voice. And even Elijah had to learn to listen for that. How do you handle it when God chooses not to speak in your emergencies? Where you're in the crucible of your tribulation and he answers you not a word, seeming to ignore you. How do you worship a Christ like that? When for four generations you have been in Egyptian bondage and you are making bricks with no straw. And you're reading scriptures that tell you there's a God in heaven who created the universe who has a special love for you and your people. But for 400 years, it seems that he has been silent to your pain. How do you handle a Jesus who tells you to get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake? And then a storm comes up and it's threatening your very life. And Jesus is asleep in the boat and he doesn't seem to care. How do you handle a Jesus whom you go to and you say, Lord, take this thorn from me. And you say that three times and you know you have dedicated your life to preaching the gospel. You have made sacrifices for this Jesus. You have been shipwrecked for this Jesus. And you make one request. And he doesn't answer you. And ultimately, the only message you get is you've got to live with the thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. How do you handle a Jesus like that? Well, as we look at the text, we can find out how the Syrophoenician woman handled a Jesus like that. And I would suggest that's what we should do, too. Uh, turn with me again to our text, uh, Matthew 15 and verse 21. And we can ask ourselves, what do you do when Jesus ignores you. That's what we see first. The woman comes to Jesus. Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. And Jesus answered her not a word. Now, to be more accurate to the text, she is coming and she is screaming at Jesus. That's the force of the language here. So she's shouting out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Now, that's probably why the disciples got irritated, because she was shouting. And the text makes it clear that she kept on shouting. So the disciples had a word for her. It seems the disciples always had a word in these emergency situations, and their word doesn't vary too much. Send her away. She's bothering us, Jesus. She keeps on annoying us by shouting out, have mercy on us. Can't you do something, Jesus, about this woman? Send her away. When the Disciples saw that there was a large crowd gathering in Mark chapter 6. 5,000, in fact. 
And they were hungry. They needed food. Do you remember the response of the disciples? Jesus, send them away. There's got to be a McDonald's close by, a Wendy's, a Burger King, uh, where they can get something to eat. Jesus, just send them away. Or when the parents were coming to Jesus with their children, infants, they wanted to be able to have Jesus touch their children. Remember the response of the disciples? Oh, Jesus, just send them away. I mean, don't, we don't want to bother with these kids. Get rid of them. Now, in the case of the Syrophoenician woman, why did they say what they said? Well, probably because this woman had three problems. Uh, first, she had the wrong face. Uh, she was a pagan. The only time in the New Testament where we read the word Canaanite is in this story. Well, we've been going through the book of Joshua. The Canaanites are those ites that were supposed to be driven out of the land. These were people who had worshipped Asherah, uh, the Canaanite goddess who was pictured with multiple breasts. The way you would worship her is that you would get involved in sexual activities uh, at her place of worship. That's what you would do. As a Canaanite, that would have been her background. Uh, that would have been the religion of her people. And we can see from a Jewish perspective why at least the disciples would say, we don't have anything to do with someone like this. She has the wrong face, Jesus. She's a Canaanite. She's, she's a pagan. Now, secondly, she had the wrong race. She was a Gentile. Now, throughout this text, it's going to be emphasized that Jesus Christ has come for the lost sheep of Israel. I mean, that is his mission. Uh, from the time of Abraham, the plan of God is that he is going to raise up a nation through the descendants of Abraham. And then through that nation, God is going to bless the rest of the nations. But the priority order is Israel first and then the rest of the world next. That is the order. And as you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, uh, that's why Jesus spent the bulk of his time going to Jewish synagogues and in Jewish territories. It is the only time in the New Testament where he gets out of uh, Jewish territory here as he's now in Canaanite territory and this Canaanite woman comes up to him. So she's got the wrong race and she's from the wrong place. From the perspective of the disciples, at least, we don't want to mess with people from your city, from your place. Tyre and Sidon were not the bastions of virtue in this day. They were not places where one would hear about the God of the Bible and so we can look at this, and from the disciples' perspective, the disciples say, well, it's appropriate that Jesus would ignore someone like this. But put yourself in the place of this Syrophoenician woman. Can you understand what she feels when you come before Jesus and it's an emergency, not just for you, but for your children? And you pray the best kind of prayer you know how to pray, Lord, have mercy on me and my daughter. And all you get is silence. I suppose it would be bad enough if that was all that happens in this text. But as we continue on, in addition to ignoring her, Jesus excludes her. He says, I wasn't sent for you. I was sent for the house of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. How would you feel if you came to Jesus and somehow was communicated to you, you're a second priority? He's got favorites and you're not among them. He seems to bless others more than he's willing to bless you. 
Well, certainly as we grow in Christ, all we have to do is look around and it seems like, you know, there are some special people who get special favors from God. And we can find ourselves, particularly at a time of desperation, when we're in the midst of our crisis and we say, well, God, can't you do something for me? And it seems like we are excluded. But notice what she does here. We can take a lesson from her. She keeps on praying. Like the persistent woman in Luke 18. She keeps on praying. She's going to be steady. She's going to be faithful. She's going to keep making her request no matter what the response. Because inwardly she believes that this Jesus can do something to meet her need. That this Jesus is who he says he is. And if she keeps on praying, Jesus will respond. And notice what else she does. She kneels. She comes before him, and now for the second time she calls him Lord, Sovereign One, Boss of the Universe. And she kneels before him in an act of worship. Is that striking to you? She is praying, and she is worshiping, and she hasn't gotten anything from Jesus yet. It's kind of like in the Old Testament, in Second Chronicles 20, there's a story of Jehoshaphat who is taking the people of Israel out to battle. And the plan for battle is, let's take the worship choir and John Carlson, we're going to put them out front, And then all the soldiers are going to be behind. So worship choir, you know, bands, praise people, you go for it, John, you lead the way. And the rest of us will follow you because we're going to lead with worship. And then as they go into battle that way, praising and worshiping God, we find that when the battle actually starts, the soldiers had little to do but just the mopping up. So like the kid who is praying, oh, God, help me on my exam. Before she gets the A on the exam, she worships. Before she gets any response from God, she pauses to let Jesus know that she recognizes that he is Lord, the sovereign one, her boss, the boss of the universe. And she prays, Lord, help me. If in a pastoral prayer a pastor stood up and that's all he prayed was, uh, Lord, help me, you know, we'd wonder, you know, have you been to seminary? I mean, do you know anything about praying? But as you look at people praying in emergency situations in the Bible, you find the prayers aren't long. When uh, Peter was sinking as he was walking on the water, you remember his prayer? Lord, help me. That was it. When the dying thief was on the cross next to Jesus and he was breathing his last breath, remember his prayer? Lord, remember me when you enter into paradise. That was it. We remind ourselves, what is prayer for? What does prayer do? Does God need to know about our situation? Does God need to know about our daughters and our sons? Are we giving God information he doesn't have when we pray? Well, of course not. God knows our circumstances. So what are we praying for? The reason why we pray is to align ourselves with God. The reason why we pray is because we recognize, or at least we should recognize, that God is Lord, that he is our Father who art in heaven. Uh, We want to say, hallowed be thy name. We want to recognize, it's thy will that I want done, Lord. And as we pray, that's what we're praying. God, I want to be in alignment with you. So what did this Syrophoenician woman need to say? Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy on me. 
That's all that needed to be said. We have a group uh, that is looking at strategy for children's ministry. Uh, Dorothy Hansen uh, is going to be retiring in June of 2007, so we're looking ahead to the future and trying to figure out how we build on the shoulders of giants uh, for the future. And so we've been reading a variety of books about uh, what children face and how more effectively to think about how to do children's ministry. It's been a fascinating for me. Uh, what we learned in the study is that when children are about three, four, five, uh, they need to be exposed to a Jesus because uh, uh, children of that age are very anthropomorphic in their thinking. They need to see the face of Jesus. They need to picture a Jesus who is loving, who is caring. The more we can help them visualize Jesus and see Jesus like them as a real person, uh, the more that can help them appreciate uh, the Jesus of the Bible. But as children grow and they get to the abstract reasoning stage, a la Piaget or Eric Erickson and a host of others, they reach a point where they are starting to do some abstract thinking and they're ready for the tougher theological issues like, why do babies die? And why is there death at all? And why is there suffering in the world? And one of the fundamental problems in evangelical churches across the United States is that there are a number of young people who reach that age of abstract reasoning and the only Jesus that they know is the Jesus who's never, ever going to let anybody suffer. The only Jesus they know is the Jesus uh, who would always love us, always provide for us, always give to us. They don't know a Jesus who would ever be silent when we have a need. And for that reason, there are a number of young people who go off to college and their faith is blown out of the water because it's never deepened as years have gone by. It's like Sam Foss says in his classic poem, A boy was born mid little things between little world and sky and dreamed not of the cosmic rings round which the circling planets fly. He lived in little works and thoughts where little ventures grow and plod and paced and plowed his little plots and prayed unto his little God. But as the mighty system grew, his faint heart grew faint with many seers. And the cosmos widened in his view, but God was lost among his stars. Another boy in lowly days, as he to little things was born, but gathered lore in woodland ways and from the glory of the morn. As wider skies broke on his view, God greatened in his growing mind. In each year he dreamed his God anew, and left his older God behind. He saw the boundless scheme dilate in star and blossom, sky and clod. And as the universe grew great, he dreamed for it a greater God. So Jesus ignores this woman. He excludes this woman. And finally, he embarrasses her. She said, Lord, help me. And Jesus responded, it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs. Can you imagine what she felt when Jesus, the Lord, called her a dog? Well, we don't have to imagine. We can look at the text and see... Even when Jesus seems to embarrass her, calling her a dog, she doesn't give up. What does she say? Yes, Lord. You want to call me a dog? You want to say that compared to the Jews, uh, that I'm a second plan? Uh, you want me to recognize uh, that it's always been your plan 
to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world, and that, you know, I get it after the Jews. You want me to say that out loud? Well, I recognize that that's the plan. It's okay with me. Uh, I don't have to be first, because any crumb from your table will do. Any way you choose to bless me, Lord, will be enough. I don't have to be first. Just give me what you choose to give me. Now, one of the things that's obvious from what she is saying here is that she's got her theology right. There's some of us, when Jesus doesn't answer us a word, we say, well, that's not right. That's not fair. I deserve more than that. How dare Jesus treat me this way? And we've got to ask ourselves, who are we before the Lord of the universe? What rights do we have if we understand what Scripture teaches? And the answer, of course, is none. None. We can't come before God demanding our rights because we have none. We can't come before God demanding that God give us what we deserve because what we deserve is eternal damnation apart from Him. The only thing we can do is come before our Lord as a Syrophoenician woman did, as a beggar, and say, Lord, have mercy on me any way you choose to bless me. That's what I want. She doesn't give up. She keeps believing that Jesus Christ loves her, and she's going to hold on to that. And the last thing she's doing, she's keep listening. It's been discouraging along the way. She's not hearing initially what she wants to hear. She's not getting the message initially that she wants to receive. But she keeps on listening like uh, Elijah had to learn. You don't always hear God in the earthquake and in the firestorm and in the wind and in the rain. Sometimes you hear him in the still, small voice. And we have to ask, are you listening? Are you listening? Maybe you've heard the uh, story about the young man who applied for the job as a Morse code operator. He went to the place where they were interviewing for the job. There was already a large crowd that had gathered there. He sat down with all those who were waiting to be interviewed. And then after waiting for a few minutes, he got up and walked into the office where the boss was. Now, the other people who were there waiting for the interview wondered about uh, the boldness of this young man. Uh, He hadn't been invited to come in. But he just walked in there. They assumed that what was happening is that he was going to get rebuked uh, for his arrogance. But after a few moments, the boss came out with his arm around this young man and he said to everybody in the room, "Uh, I've just given the job uh, to this young man so the rest of you can go home. Well, there were a few there a bit irritated by that because the boss hadn't even talked to them. And someone finally stood up and said, now, wait a minute, this isn't fair. You haven't even interviewed us. How how can you give the job to this man? He was the last one to come. And then the boss said, all the while that you were sitting here, I was was, uh, tapping out a message in Morse code. If you understand this message, come into the office. The job is yours. And this young man was the only one, apparently, who understands Morse code. So he's the only one that came in, and he's got the job. Sometimes it may seem God is silent, 
And the problem is we don't know how to listen. So what's God saying to us? It seems to me if we look at this story and we put ourselves in the perspective of the Syrophoenician woman, we have to say that there are occasions for us when Jesus says, you may be the Syrophoenician woman. Maybe you're the Syrophoenician woman today. And you come before God with your emergency request and you're getting silence from heaven. So what do you need to do? Well, maybe you need to step across your borders. Maybe you need to leave Tyre and Sidon. Maybe you need to recognize uh, that you're still just one prayer away from deliverance. What you do need to recognize is that Jesus still loves you. Uh, He loves the Jews. Uh, He loves the pagans. He loves you. You need to recognize that Jesus is concerned about you. He's concerned about your daughter. He's concerned about what concerns you. And the fact that he may not be answering you immediately is not an indication that he doesn't care for you. He's waiting for you to worship him before you get the A on the exam, before he does anything for you. You can say, well, George, how can you be so sure of that? The reason I can be so sure is that God may be silent for a while, but I know he's going to speak. I know that because the greatest silence we've ever known happened on Calvary. One Friday, it was Jesus who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God said nothing. In fact, the sun protested, began to have an eclipse. The moon came between the sun and the earth, but God said nothing. The moon began to drip like it was hemorrhaging, but God said nothing. The earth was rocking like an inebriated man. But God said nothing. Even the Roman centurion began to protest and say, Surely this must be the Son of God. But God said nothing. Nothing on Friday. Nothing on Saturday morning. Nothing on Saturday night. But early Sunday morning, he broke the silence and began to speak. Because he lives You can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because he lives. You can face the future. Life is worth the living because he lives. He may be silent now, but be assured our Lord will speak. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father. Every one of us in this room recognizes There are times for us when we are the Syrophoenician woman. When we cry out to you, Lord, have mercy on me, and you are silent, and we don't get it. We don't understand it. Father, I pray that we might learn from her example, that we should keep on worshiping and keep on praying, and recognize that as you love the lost sheep of Israel, you love the Gentiles, you love every one of us. God, give us the patience to believe that. Give us the faith to understand Uh, that you want to intervene in our sadness. You want us to grow in our faith. You want us to believe that you are a God who does act. And so, Father, take us to Calvary. Help us to understand what Jesus felt when you were silent in his suffering. 
Help us understand what Jesus felt as he was carrying the sins of the world. And there was no one that seemed to care for him, even you. And then, Father, we pray that you'll take us to Easter Sunday morning where we recognize the glories of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where we recognize that what we have in Jesus is new life and new life that is abundant. Father, may we relish that new life in Christ now as we enter into the worship of the Lord's Supper and remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us in this room. In his name we pray. Amen.